0: Hi and welcome to a special episode of our Experiencing Consciousness podcast. We are
1: Roxana Eriksson, Catherine Rossi,
0: and I'm Jan Deba.
1: We are so happy you are here. So, Jan and Catherine, I wanted to tell you about this webinar that I did last night and it was a three-hour webinar with some they're not beginners i would call them intermediate students of hypnosis and one of the things that i wanted to show them was the feeling the effects the experience of a very long trans induction and within this induction, we, I used some fractionation, which is lighting of the trance and then deepening of the trance very intentionally. It was a group induction. And at the conclusion of this hour long trance, then we had a discussion and there was so many questions raised about depth of trance that had got me thinking about the topic of depth of trance. And that's what I wanna talk with the two of you today. Because I know I have my feelings about the use of the natural fluctuations of up and down in trance, how important that is. And then it also raises questions about if not a conversation, is that necessarily light trance? And it brings forth the question, what about when you have intervals of silence in your hypnotic trance? Is that an opportunity for a very deep trance? And then there is that age old question is do you get better results or different results from deep trance work than you do from light transfer work? And so I just thought this would be a fabulous opportunity to get your ideas and to share my ideas and to talk about the overarching concepts of depth of trance. So I can start, but I I would also um, really like it, even if you interrupt me and say, oh no, I have a different idea, (laughs) that's good with me.
2: Well, you know that this depth of trance has been, a key interest of Jan's for a long time, that this is what fascinates him, I believe, the most about therapeutic <laughs> hypnosis. And so, Jan, I'd love to hear a few words from you.
1: Okay, and I'm a little shamefaced. faced no, I did not even know that that was your area of expertise. So perhaps your ideas are even certainly as yeah, significant, if not more significant than mine.
0: <laughs> well, we we see maybe we've got uh, some uh, views in common, maybe they, they are different, that would be enriching also. Uh, I always am very interesting, uh, interested in when someone actually starts the topic of a deep trance, I go like, did I hear, <laughs> did I hear well? I mean, you know, so <laughs> it all generally started with the with the well where where it started uh yeah that, that's true that it's my interest uh, uh and it's because well w- when i was going through dr Erickson's work most of the times when i went through all the all his uh, 316 cases i believe most of the times in the original articles where he was describing the case study he would say that the person was in the deep trance or in a light trance or in a mild trance or somewhere in between and i was always frustrated with the fact that many people in the ericksonian community they say that there's no such thing as the depth of trance or that there's that that it doesn't matter and most of them uh most of those that i was talking to uh support that with a vague uh, statement that erickson said somewhere that the depth of trans doesn't matter and that was not my experience because uh, first of all i don't recall there is an article from i believe 1958 or something or 66 uh, somewhere in uh, late 50s or uh, early 60s uh, where uh, that hero wrote that's that's named i believe the nature and induction of deep hypnosis and Mm. that's that's one thing that i would start with the other is uh i don't know where he actually said that the depth of trance doesn't matter but i believe that if he specifies each time that he describes his work with the client the depth of trance that maybe it was a significant factor for him i mean i i don't know but that that was how, how i was thinking about it and he actually specifies in this article that it is important and that it's difficult sometimes to grasp it because it's very individualized and we don't we cannot always be sure if someone is in a deep trance or not because for for example there are those uh, trance indicators uh, which the, the manifestations of trance in like mimics or body immobility or some things like that many indicators that we can behaviorally see that actually tell us if someone is in a trance or not but they are also very individualized and sometimes can occur in a deep trance sometimes in a light trance so to me mostly they are indicators that something is going on not not always the depth itself So, but but I was uh, always fascinated with it and I was trying to master my skills in going deeper and deeper into the trance and being able to, you know, go through all the hypnotic phenomena, uh, like, for example, induce um, positive and negative hallucinations. I was training myself in doing that for years. And uh, and, uh, then I was when I started my own courses in hypnosis I was trying to teach that to people and it was very difficult to do that because I knew how to do it I had very difficult uh, um times to uh, describe how how I do it in such a way in a clear way that that people can actually repeat that so I noticed that there was kind of block that I can show it demonstrate it then i can tell them how i do it and give exercises and then that's it the exercise doesn't go too well so i was thinking i started thinking about it in terms that i do something wrong as a teacher and that you know because everything at least to a degree is um learnable teachable you know things like that So I started to actually go through the literature to find out, because I needed a model, something that I could present to people so that they could have at least a simplified way to understand what is actually going on and how to actually spot where they are actually in this process, and if they know where they are, what to do next, and so on. And so I I was trying to find out figure out or find someone or something, some place, some articles about the nature of the deep trance, about how to do it and so on. And the only thing that I've actually found directly mentioning the deep trance was this one article from Dr. Erickson. So I went through it like thousands of times, uh, almost learned it by heart, you know, like like that, and then started to think about it and kind of when, went through neurobiological theories of hypnosis to find out if there's any that could actually, um, uh, you know, at least to a degree say something or have any kind of thoughts about the different depths of trance and stuff. And I and then I met something that's called the cold control theory of hypnosis. It's from the Amir Ras, I believe. no, sorry, it's from. Uh, uh, I don't know if I ca- kind of pronounce it correctly, but the, the the researcher, the the creator of the theory was called Zoltan D Dienes, I believe. Uh, if I mispronounce him, I'm deeply sorry. Uh, although I I deeply respect his contributions. So he actually mentions in one of his articles from uh, 2007, I believe, that there are different levels of difficulty in terms of different suggestions. That there are suggestions that are actually more difficult than others and that there are neurobiological reasons for it. So I was like, hmm, that can be a good start. you know. And then I also started to go, because then I thought to myself, there are also tons of research on suggestibility. And so you can look at uh, suggestibility research from the point of view that there is a kind of characteristics that we have and that we actually measure it and and so it identifies a character uh, tra- uh, uh, character tra- trait or so- or something like that you know but um, but uh, the way they do actually those research is that they actually, they they go w- w- with people doing experiment through different kinds of suggestions that are um, Varied according to their difficulty level, you know. And so they tell people to do the different things that are um, becoming, at least from the point of view of some theory, more and more difficult. And the more people are able to do, the more suggestible or hypnotizable they are. So I was like, we can look at it from the point of view of someone being gifted or talented. Or we can look at it from the perspective of someone is going to a deeper state of trance or not to deep state of trance or something like that. And then I thought, I started thinking about the depth of trance from a different point of view because I kind of reversed the whole thing. So I was, uh, from the clinical point of view, what I'm interested in actually is what people can do in a trance. So normally when someone thinks about the depth of trance they go the deeper someone can go the more they can do and i reversed that and i said to myself the more someone can do in a trance the deeper they are so and it, and it's i mean it, it it's a different approach because then in in the model that we created with dr katrin rossi there are three levels of according to those research on suggestibility and also the theory of of uh, dr dns uh i was able to and some other models i was able to distinguish three levels of suggestions in terms of difficulty the f- first level is uh, are the simple motor suggestions you know idiomotor activity and stuff and uh then, then there are challenge suggestions, which which are those that, for, for example, you say to a person and that hand will go up all by itself and you can try to stop it only to find out that you can't. And these are slightly more difficult than the simple motor suggestions. And then there are those suggestions that involve cognitive distortions, like, for example, hallucinations, amnesias, and, you know, things like that so these are the three levels of the depth of trance in my theory and it's very important because if if you have that kind of model then you actually uh, assess the depth of trance not from the look on the face of the person that is hypnotized or for example you know the contraction or relaxation of muscles or the muscle tonus or whatever you judge the level of the trance or the depth of the trance by what they can do. So if people can go and perform or create um, um, idiomotor activity, that means that we are on the first level. If we can go from there to challenge suggestions, which means, for example, that they can feel paralyzed and not being able to stand up, we are at the second level. And if they can, for example, hallucinate something, or forget their name, or whatever you know, whatever other kind of cognitive distortion that they have, that means that we are on the fourth, third level of the of the thing, and so so, and the model also kind of tells you how to go, how to transfer from one level to the other, and what to do, based actually on the model presented in uh hypnotherapy and exploratory casebook and also in hypnotic realities and experiencing hypnosis the books from dr erickson and dr rossi they actually tell you in those books uh, how to develop those states to a degree and if you have that model that structure and the hints and kind of um uh, everything that the instructions that are hidden in those three books that are also kind of redis read described in uh in in our article that we did together then you can at least to a degree know what to do to go from one level to the other which translates to how to increase the depth of trance or go deeper in a trance and then the model also tells you what to do when you are stuck in on a cer- certain level what you need to do to unstuck or go further you know plus it also has one more assumption that the depth of trance is more a skill than a characteristic uh, of a person and it's very important because if it's a skill that means that it is actually trainable learnable or you can actually you know learn to do it better and uh, we can we we based that on some research on hypnotic suggestibility because there are research that actually shows that you can modify the hypnotic suggestibility and hypnotic uh, realities are the book is the book that actually describes the hypnotic training of a person that you know went from being moderately hypnotizable to someone who was able to perform deeper and deeper hypnotic phenomena each time so well, that's generally it in a great shortcut ver- version, comic version of the model.
1: So Roxy, what do you think of that? Well, the, it does call attention to the um, the difference of thought that the researchers who do the hypnotizability test don't really look at this as a skill that one can learn to get deeper and deeper into the hypnotic trance state. Now, I disagree with that way of thinking. And I think the three of us all kind of ascribed to the um, hypnosis and going into trance is a skill set that can be enhanced and perfected with time and with practice and with experiences so i just wanted to to call attention to the fact that there is respectable you know educated people on the other side of the fence but this is the position that we have and I know that I intentionally use Depth of Trance in my therapeutic work, but I'm really interested now, Catherine, do you, do you hear what your thoughts are? Well, you know,
2: I work so experientially and, um, you know, as you know, and often with... With very few words, and so I am looking at the visual visual cues of uh, of what's happening with depth of trance. And um, while well, um, Ernest used to say he would repeat that the depth of trance doesn't matter. In regards, like to transformation, to what the uh, what the client gets out of it. Some people can be in a really light trance, and they can really get what they need. And some people can be, you know. So in this respect, as Jan points out, it's individual, and um, uh, and what's important about that is that, that um, there are many uh, therapists that feel like, well, unless I can get this person into a really deep trance, nothing is going to happen. So they miss the subtleties of the light trance. So, you know, once again, it's really individual. That being said, I see a lot more movement with people the deeper they go into trance, yes. and um, and that I have observed in my own practice over the decades is that it is a learned skill. That you know, the first time someone comes in for um, a, a, a session that they, um, they're, 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 they're feeling things out, you know, are they safe? Are you safe? You know, this sort of thing. And, um, I mean, largely, that doesn't happen to me anymore. People come in, they know who I am, and they just go, boom, you know, they're there. Um, um, But appreciating that we grow on a daily and hourly basis and then, when you bring in the biology of that, that we're continuously growing, and what that means is that we're increasing our skill sets, and um, and I believe that, and I believe that it's it's um, exceedingly important. So, what is required? that also many therapists don't really think about is you start with a baseline what is it that this person is is you know naturally able to do that's their baseline and so it's like okay then I know if it's going to go up by or I know if it's going to go down into deeper trance or you know or they're going to be up more in their cognitive thinking and um And so that kind of observation of, okay, there's the baseline. I wonder what's going to happen, creates an engagement on behalf of the therapist. So I will also tell you, from the years of being with Ernest, when he was doing therapy with people, you know, therapeutic hypnosis, 100% of the time, he would go into trance himself. And often the depth of trance that he went into was reflected with the client. And in the later years, he would go into really deep trances. His eyes were closed and he was taking people through a therapy with his eyes closed. And he told me, Catherine, don't do that. Don't, you know, you keep your eyes open when you're with people. You know, don't, don't do what it is that I'm doing. And so I, I said, okay. And of course, when we were together, my eyes were open and I was looking for all the visual cues and things like that. And inevitably, the client would open up their eyes and they would look at Ernie whose eyes were closed and he's in this deep trance and he's you know has a stream of consciousness coming through him that was always spot on every single time. You know, I know it's just the depth of experience that he had. And they would look at him often for 30 seconds to a minute, and then they would close their eyes and they would go into a deeper trance and stay there. Mm -hmm. So um, that it was it was uncanny. And so now I'm going to make my confession since Ernie has... um, uh, passed on. Sometimes when I'm with people, you know, in in doing hypnosis, I'll find my eyes closing, going into a deep trance, and simply trusting. But again, I had the have the depth of experience, particularly having worked with Ernie, and in the observer in the back of my mind is saying, "Now remember, Ernie said to keep your eyes open." But um, um, the the skill, and this is a skill set on behalf of the therapist, of being able to go into trance when you're with somebody um, hypnotherapeutically speaking, and um, because it, and and you start out absolutely with a very light trance. Because you've got to be able to be paying attention to all of the other signs and signals. And maybe being in a light trance is it's exactly the place to be. But what Ernie felt very strongly is that he wouldn't ask somebody to go into trance if he wasn't willing to do it himself. Again, this is a different point of view. Because there are people that feel so comfortable with scripts you know, and things that are really right for them. In how they practice, and so it's a little more difficult when you're reading a script, for instance, to go into trance, but the i go into a personal trance. But the idea is somehow to join with that client, Mm -hmm. to be in the same headspace that they're in. So you're not outside looking in, but you're joining them. And so I. it's really coming from an experiential point of view and also noticing the changes.
1: The one question I have, Catherine, is you use um, silence in your trans work much more than I do. I have learned from you to encourage myself to capitalize on the the power and the potential of just shutting up and letting the subject proceed on into the depth of trance but i'm curious from your um way of looking at this of what what do you think that that silence does to um, to the process of depth of trance what, what is your impression
2: my impression is they go deeper mm-hmm. and um, because when things aren't coming from the outside then they need to come from the inside and depending on the person and also we talked a little bit about conversational trance Um, And I also find in conversational trance, when people start to drift off, their eyes start moving, you know, upwards or, you know, or their eyes close, is that they're going into a space of their own. And when that's how I become sensitive. Now, some people really need to have a verbal support that's going on underneath. And Roxy, that's your genius of being able to give that verbal support where you're not giving suggestions, et cetera, but it's just a verbal support. Um, But I, I find that when you have the courage and it takes huge courage as a therapist to not speak, to go into silence, and um but when you don't second guess yourself about it that you're going to wait for a clue from the client themselves um in order to um you know to speak again it it is um uh deeply relaxing because the burden of psychotherapy really is on the client rather than the therapist to figure out what to do which is what uh, my favorite paper that Milton ever wrote in 1964, and um, and that that being able to you know, like really be there in the present moment with that person who is delving deep into something that you have absolutely no idea of what they're doing, and in. Um, You know, about 30 years ago, um, Ernie made the hand processes and whatnot really quite simple, but he uh, also dealt with silence. And so here, here he's in silence, and here the client is, and he has no idea of what they're doing, thinking, saying, feeling, experiencing, and he would simply say, and is that going well for you? Mm-hmm. And um, there was usually a, a pause, quite a pause, might even be forty-five seconds, which you know is a huge pause when you know in regular life. And then there'd be a really subtle nod. Mm-hmm. I'm actually the nod I'm giving is not as subtle as what you see. It's just this really subtle. Um, so that you know it's going well, and they continue. Um, And sometimes he used to say back then, yes, yes, and can you go even deeper Mm -hmm. into experiencing what you need to experience to take you further? So he gave a lot more suggestions um earlier in his career associated with silence it's interesting isn't it but when he got the confirmation that the person they're good to go then he would literally kick back in his chair you know change his leg position and just watch what was going on until you know he would see a shift and typically, after that kind of experience, there'd be a lot of rapid eye movement, you know, and so some kind of association would be going on. And, um, and that if it were, for instance, a clinical demonstration in front of an audience, and he'd be looking at the clock, it's like there's three minutes to the end. And then he would um, give the suggestion, and when something inside you knows that you can continue this work, what will it be like to come back to this room? And often a minute would pass, or, or maybe 30 seconds would pass, and, and I don't know if your eyes will open or if you'll start to move. You know, so he would give those kinds of suggestions. And then, um, uh, it didn't matter, you know what the waking up was, but the person would then you know come back to the come back to the room and uh, and then he would say, while well, keeping all of that private, if there's something that you would like to share that's appropriate to share, then you can share it. And I would say that probably, um, 40 percent of the time, people chose to keep it to themselves and not share. And, um, uh, and so it became important of that 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 silence continued. And obviously, when they were, um, had come out of the deep trance, everybody knew they were still in trance, a medium trance to a light trance. And I would instruct the audience, said, now, if you have questions for this person or observations, please wait until tomorrow, respecting that they need to continue processing so they weren't bombarded when they got off the stage. So I found that, that silence, it works for me, and, um, and I, I really, really enjoy it. And even in private practice, it's like if a person wishes to keep all of it private and personal and not share, you know, that's okay. I just make sure before they leave my office, before they get in a car, that they are fully awake, and mm-hmm. the where
1: mm-hmm.
2: and um, um because sometimes once people get into trance they want to stay there what a respite particularly a really deep trance where you don't even know what's happening in your unconscious mind but you know something's going on mm-hmm. well,
0: Dr. Roxana I noticed that you actually took my role today so I will do what you or Dr. Katrin Rossi always do when I do it. I will encourage you more and ask you about your experiences with the deep trance and your understandings, because what you said mostly is that you actually do it and that's all of my understanding for now. So I'm very curious about your perspective on the subject.
1: Well, My um, practice as a hypnotherapist is almost entirely clinical. I'm short-term, I consider myself short-term strength-based, present and future-oriented hypnotherapy as the tools that I use. And we learn as hypnotherapists, we learn a lot of techniques and strategies and things that we can do to enhance um, depth of trance. And we learn that without even really having a true understanding of what is depth of trance or why would you even be interested in it. But, As we become seasoned, as we become experienced and practiced and really find our way into routines that are effective for us as an individual, I know that I have found that I don't shut my eyes. I've got laser eyes on the subject. Seriously, if it's an individual or if it's a whole room full of people, I am looking around face to face and making my assessment of depth of trance. Are they in trance? Are they in a deep trance? Are they in a light trance? Are they responsive? And then that guides me as to where I go from. from where I'm speaking at the moment and the um, and like but likewise I do use trance because when I am in a deep trance I find myself more um, capable of these observations of the minimal use Um, now one of the things so I intentionally try to elicit or provoke or, or bring about or invite whatever whatever verb you want to use i try to bring about a deep trance state because i do find that people are more responsive and, and i will say it's suggestion but it's not only a suggestion it's responsive to finding their own inner resources that can help them overcome the problems that they are seeking to overcome. And the, um, so, so, as I said, I'm observing, observing very carefully. I'm seeking a deeper trance state. I'm noticing the fluctuations. And not hypnotic trance state is not a static, deeper and deeper, falling down. You know, it's a fluctuating process. And there is going to be lighter intervals in a deep trance. And one has to trust that, that in those lighter intervals, something is getting internally rearranged. That something is somebody is you know the subject is getting a different viewpoint of whatever it is that they're working on. So there are a few um techniques that I use on a regular basis to um to deepen trance, and w- one of them is by noticing that, that when there is an up and then noticing and when there is a a beginning of the depth and then give be liberal with the suggestions to find comfort and relaxation upon inner resources when they're on that downslide.
0: i need to i need to cut in here because many times you say uh, I pay attention to where they are, to when they are going deeper, and then now you say I've got a technique. So when I see that they are going deeper, I do this. And my question, so my question would be, what actually do you pay attention to? How do you know where uh, wh- when people are going deeper, or you know, in, into the lighter state of trance?
1: Um, so that begins with what Catherine says; it's a baseline the first time you have the hypnotic um, experience with somebody there is when you're observing what their baseline is some people are real fidgety some people just close their eyes and look look as if they're very deep in trance some some people keep their eyes open some keep their So so there are some markers of relaxation that are cues, but they don't tell the whole story. So after the first hypnotic trance, which which is when I'm making my baseline assessment, um, as Catherine says, I give the subject the opportunity to express what they want to express. I believe very strongly that if one starts debriefing and trying to get the subject to tell, you know, blow by blow what the experience was like, that you're depotentiating the probability that they're going to continue working and problem solving within themselves. So I'm very, very careful and the, the, you know the silly the silly way I of explaining it is don't shake the jello <laughs> you know let, let the jello let it stabilize sit there um but if the but if the client wants to you know say oh I saw this or I felt that or this idea came to me you know if they're compelled to express it, then I'm always willing and curious. (laughs) I'm always curious, but I'm subduing my own curiosity. But that tells me, that initial session tells me how this individual's body responds. And then, so the next time we have a hypnotic session, I already know. Are they going to be still? Are they gonna be motionless? And are they, is the color going to change from the, you know, from their face? Are they going, or are they going to reposition? Are they going to open their eyes? Is their breathing going to change? I've already made my observations. And as the trance depth gets deeper, this is my observation. Their body becomes stiller. It looks more as if they're entering a deeper, of the almost falling asleep or you know a deeper stage of of the introspection, and so and their color changed, and and likewise their breathing slows, and. I can, my vision isn't that good that I can see the eyelid flutter that much, but I am trained, you know, credit my nursing background. I can always see the breathing from across the room. I can see something's breathing and I can usually see their pulse points. And so I'm looking for relaxation of breathing. I'm looking for relaxation of breathing balls. And then you see, you know, little intervals where, you know, something is changing and then they drift back in. And so I'm observing the physiological songs and the messages that they give me. So I give them, usually I like to schedule two weeks between appointments. So when they come back in two weeks later, I've already made my baseline observations. And they come back in two weeks later, and I say, "Let's talk about jury hypnosis." <laughs> you know, I I open the door like that, and sometimes they want to talk about it, sometimes they don't, and I don't I don't pull it out, but I am looking. For what comments they make, because the comments definitely reinforces in my way. It reinforces the depth of trance. I also
2: knows, noticed notice that in in uh, deciding depth of trance, if the person is speaking, their rate of speech changes uh-huh. slower. And the deeper the trance, the longer the words are. You know, uh, uh, if I say hello 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 and um you know so you can see that there that that the the rate of speech like really changes mm-hmm. and the other thing that really changes is the more deep they are the fewer words that they'll use to describe if you're asking for
0: something yeah there's mm-hmm. an economy of words and movement also
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> however i would i i, I would say however that's that's generally true except for the somnambulic trance where people can behave as uh, no, normally as usually as in a waking state but they are very deep into trance and they can do whatever they want and normally and outside observer, when they don't know where where to look or what to look for, they they have huge difficulties distinguishing between uh, those states, I mean, somnambulic trance and, um, and waking normal usual waking conscious state.
1: So and I want to say that I use that somnambulistic trance state, if I want to write a script, and I one of my individualized personal teaching techniques is that if I have a, a case or if I'm planning on teaching a group, I will write a script in preparation for that. I won't necessarily use the script, but the mental rehearsal of the, these are the points that I want to convey. I go into a trance state, I sit down before my computer and I'm typing on my words, the channel is open, and I'm you know, just going on and on. And I can tell you that any family, I usually get up early in the morning so I don't get disturbed by family members. But if a family member came in and took a look at me, they would not think it's possible that I'm in a trance state, but I know that I am. This is something I've intentionally cultivated within myself.
2: I'm curious about something you probably won't be able to answer, but when, when you're in that state, do you see shadows?
1: Um, no. I just I see
2: because, you know, that when the difference like, um, like, you know, if you're in a dream state, you know, so you're dreaming at night, um, more often than not, there's not shadows. And um, I had an experience um, when I started college is that I had vivid, 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 vivid dreams of my professors and other learned people coming and teaching me all night long. And, uh, and then I'd go to class and I'd see that professor. And when it came time to take the test, I had to determine which one was the dream and which one was the reality. And I discovered I didn't have shadows in my dreams. Mm -hmm. And so I could, because I was very difficult. I didn't know if I was asleep or awake you know, for quite a while. And obviously this was like a huge gift that happened to me, but I had to figure it out because sometimes I would say insightful things to people and they would say, how did you know that? I never said that. It's like, oh, well, it was, you came to me in my dream. I mean, that sort of thing, you know, you, you look like you're um, psychotic, right? So I could never tell anybody that my nights are like this and after a while I said enough I want to live the regular life of a 20 year old you know I don't want to have you know this all this stuff going on but I found it really fascinating is that uh, when I tuned in with my observer in my dreams there was no shadows and Hmm. uh, and if that is a characteristic of the some symbolistic um trance I don't which is you know one of those curious things
0: can be researched have you ever checked if that's your personal uh, experience or is it uh, more uh, general kind of thing
2: with with the shadows yeah um no but every time i've said it and people tune in they go yeah i'm, I'm not seeing shadows in my dreams and so i really don't know but i think that um um when you're when you're dancing with different levels of consciousness mm-hmm. of and we're talking about depths of trance here and so obviously there's there's depths of sleep and depths of dreaming and sleep and whatnot and if if it turns out that there are you know we know there's physiological differences but it's like um uh, that uh, it, could there be visual differences like like no shadows and, um, um, and, and, I don't know, I just, I find it really interesting.
1: So, we've been talking for a while about depth of trance mm-hmm. and related topics, and, and, and um, It seems as if we barely scratched the surface of of this potential discussion. Um, But I'm thinking that this is possibly a good place to stop for today. And um, maybe we can pick up the discussion after we have a chance to process it a little bit and focus in on aspects that might be really helpful for our audience and likewise the audience if there are specific questions that people have that will give us some direction that we can focus on as well
0: yes exactly I yeah, I totally agree. What would you say to that, Dr. Catherine Rossi? I
2: I think that that's really fabulous, and and so much of um, the uniqueness that we have, you know, the three of us, is that we can bring ideas forward, and and so people that are listening, that to stimulate your thinking, to stimulate your imagination, to go deeper into, who am I as a psychotherapist? Who am I as a person? And and hopefully to awaken your numinosum, you know that which is fascinating, tremendous, and mysterious in you, and to to live an even better life.
0: Yes. Okay. So thank you very much for today, and uh, Doctor Roxanne Erickson. I have to say that you've been the best, greatest, most generous host of our podcast. <laughs> incredible thank you very much and see you all next time in another episode of our podcast
1: thank you bye bye now
0: this was another episode of our experiencing consciousness podcast thank you for being with us
1: thank you jan
2: you're the best be well be happy celebrate life